This episode of Control is brought to you by Melbourne Recital Centre, where live music lives. Melbourne Recital Centre inspires our community through music, presenting and hosting hundreds of concerts each year, traversing all genres of music from Baroque to post-rock. Discover more at melbournerecital.com.au. There's no one that's female. I mean, why in the hell would I think that I can be successful? Women are not making it to the top of any profession. So it's a very male-dominated environment. We do exist in this society where women in entertainment are discarded. There are women over 40 making pop music, but you won't hear them on commercial radio. And this is why conversation between women and music has never been more important. Hi, and welcome to The Control Podcast. Hey, thank you so much. The Control Podcast, where we speak to wildly inspiring women in control of their music and in control of their careers. I'm Chelsea Wilson, your host, and thrilled to be, oh, thank you, thrilled to be broadcasting from the beautiful Primrose Potter Salon here at Melbourne Recital Centre. I'd like to acknowledge that we are on the lands of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to First Nations peoples, elders and emerging leaders. It's an honour to be contributing to over 60,000 years of knowledge sharing and music making on these lands. In this special live episode of Control, I'm delighted to be speaking to Parvan Singh, an influential Punjabi Australian vocalist, songwriter, dancer and educator. A prolific live artist, Parvin began her international touring career with her father, Daya Singh, at the age of seven. In 2010, Parvin was a founding member of the Bombay Royale, who in 2012 released their first album, You, Me, Bullets, Love, which went straight to number one on the iTunes World Music Charts. Internationally, she's performed at events such as the Winnipeg Folk Festival, Salmon Arm Folk Festival, Hillside Festival in Canada, the California World Music Festival, Glastonbury, WOMAD UK, Cambridge Folk Festival, Royal Albert Hall, Singapore Arts Festival and the Smithsonian Institute, to name just a few. And closer to home, she's appeared at festivals such as Woodford Folk Festival, National Folk Festival, Womadelaide, Fairbridge Folk Festival and many more. An avid collaborator, she's worked with artists such as Mantra, Joel Listics, El Fresh the Lion, and toured with soul legend Sharon Jones. During the COVID-19 pandemic, she launched a new chapter in her career with her debut record, Saar. So please join me in a huge Control Podcast welcome for Parvin! Yay! <laughs> Thank you, Parvin. Please have a seat. Oh, please have a seat. Hi, Parvin. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. This is really good. Thank you for everyone that's here. It's nice to see lots of familiar faces in the crowd. So good. And thank you so much for joining me on the Control Podcast. I'm so excited to chat to you about your career. I've been such a huge fan of your work and a fan of the Bombay Royale. And I was so excited to see your solo career blossoming and hear your debut record, which is incredible. But I'd really like to, if we can, go back very early in your career. You started singing professionally with your father, Daya Singh, when you were very, very young. 
What was that experience like for you and what were your key learnings? I think um, the tradition of Sikh traditional music, spiritual music that we do, it's a very much on-the-job training and on-the-job learning. Mm -hmm. So you just kind of get absorbed by the culture and you just sit there and you learn on the spot. Um, I definitely learned how to improvise and, and just go with the flow and, uh, and it's just been something that it's been part of my life forever. So it's a very natural thing for me mm. to be on stage and performing. There are definitely times when I remember that I wasn't wanting to perform or I didn't wow. enjoy it so much. So that kind of push through attitude of the show must go on mm. and the stage skills of just smile, just, just you know, perform and be, be that kind of, yeah, really comfortable on stage. I am incredibly grateful for the experience. Uh, and I think it's the same with learning any instrument when you're young. And I know that there are some classical players here as well that like there is an element of discipline that you mm. have to push through and that your parents kind of help you to get through. And at the time it might not be so enjoyable, but I appreciate <laughs> that now, I think, um, definitely. But yeah, I grew up on the stage. I, I used to fall asleep in my mum's arms, so all my sisters and my mum used to sit behind us, so all of us would be on stage together. Um, yeah, when there was this one song that Dad would sing, and it was like my sleepy song, and so I would literally fall asleep. I was five years old at the time, so it's okay <laughs> that I used to fall asleep on stage. Uh, yeah, it's just been a part of my life, it's a part of the culture, um, and yeah, the way it's been passed through to me from Dad, I'm incredibly grateful for. And so was it something that as a family you were just always singing and always making music and it just naturally came into the stage? Were you asking as a kid, can I get up, can I get up? <laughs> I don't think I was. I, uh, my mum and my sister are here. I don't think I actually ever really was super enthusiastic about getting to stage. It was kind of like a I'll just follow along because I'm the youngest of the three girls. So I just, it just is what we did. We just performed. Mm -hmm. um, and so we would start when I was three years old. Um, my parents actually started the first Sikh temple in Adelaide because uh, there was no Sikh Gurdwara, which was there. So they started the temple and we would perform in the Gurdwara. And then from there, there was a gentleman, Keith Preston, that came and, and saw us, and then he encouraged Dad to take it out onto the stage, like the music that we would do. It's, it's gospel. It's our church yeah. music. Mm -hmm. And so it's just what we were doing. Every Sunday, we used to go and do it at the temple. So it was a natural progression from that, getting onto stage. And for me, I mean, when you're five years old, you just, you just go with the flow. You just sort of, oh, is this what we're doing now? Okay, and they'll dress me up and, you know, I'll just sit there with my head covered. And I think for the first couple of years, I didn't actually know many of the words of the songs. Like, <laughs> I would just kind of <laughs> mime along to it. And what was the kind of training like? Because you've got such an incredible ear and a beautiful voice. Was that just all really that learning by ear? Mm. Did someone break it down and <laughs> go mm. through? No? Okay. No. <laughs> My father is not a patient man, <laughs> and so it would just be, like I said, on-the-job training, like learning. You, he would just sing a line, and you were 
you ex expected to s sing along with it. And if, if you got it right, then he would give you another line to sing. And so you would sing that. If you got it wrong, he would cut you off and start going somewhere else. So you just kind of got these opportunities every once in a while to, to do it. And then if you got it well, you, you were encouraged to keep going. And if you didn't get it right, you would be cut off. And then you just have to sit and listen. So listening um, is all... The way that you learn Indian classical music is all by ear. There's no notation for it. Wow. So Dyer Singh's been described as an enigma, as a musical pioneer, as an Aussie larrikin, as a true spiritual messenger. How do you think your father has influenced you as an artist? Uh, all of those things. I would like to know where you got those um, quotes from because he <laughs> is that. He's very much an enigma. Um, he is the most incredibly naturally talented performer uh, and like his comfort levels on stage and in front of an audience is incredible. He has such a great charisma. Uh, I struggle to keep up with the sort of charisma that he has, for sure. Like, it's, uh, I think it's a hard thing to follow in, in your parents' footsteps if they're a really big personality mm. and, and, and they have such an incredible presence. But I, I, what I think I've done is not tried to copy what he does. Mm -hmm. I've tried to really strip it back and be true and authentic to my story and the type of music that I like the way that I write my songs naturally, like I, I didn't want to try and be that. I wanted to try and find my own voice and deliver that and not having to be compared with what he does or what he did. Mm. Well, I saw that he commented on your film clip for what you see on YouTube and I quote, he's written, it takes courage to step out of one's comfort zone, go out on a limb and do something special. I admire those who do. Of course, it also requires commitment, discipline and talent. Belief in one's ability also features strongly. Well done, my daughter. This is a stunning audiovisual number. It is unique. Yes. <laughs> just, just. When I read, I did, I did burst out into tears after reading that comment. I, um, yeah, when I saw that, I was just like, oh, this is amazing. It was a good moment. It's really beautiful. So throughout your career, Indian music and culture has informed and inspired your work. Can you share with us a little bit about the approach there and how culture is linked with your artistic expression? I think part of my job as an artist and as a human being is that I want to be able to be representative of the minority culture that I come from, especially in Australia. It's kind of like I didn't have... Well, I had my dad, who was an incredible example of taking our culture and being proud and bold and going out and spreading the word. Because mm -hmm. um, it's a part of education, educating society, um, so that we can all understand each other better and get along better. So for me, I, maybe it is a thing where if you are from a minority culture, you hold on to it more and that becomes part of what inspires you to do the thing, is to spread that message and, and, and spread that culture because it's such a beautiful thing. So I have been conscientious about that, about that representation of, of Sikh, Punjabi, brown women, voices, in Australia and, and throughout the world as well. Like, 
I want to be able to be there as an example of what you can do and that you mm. don't have to hide. Because there's sometimes there's the um, tendency of, of migrant communities to hide their culture and to, to just keep it behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. But it's, I think we can share it because we can all be better off and richer from the experience of each other's cultures and, and learning of how people deal with life and, and how they view things and the philosophy of those cultures. It just makes you for a richer experience of, of life and experience, um, yeah, of knowledge, I think. So do you feel a sense of responsibility with your artistic practice to kind of be carrying that flag? Yes and no. I am aware that I am representing part of it, but I also don't want to hold that, let that hold me back from being true to myself. Yes, the parven. The, the parven. Where's parven in yeah. that? Yeah, mm. and that there's so it's so multifaceted. Like there's so many different things that I enjoy and I like, and I don't want to be kind of you know, narrowed down to this one role. So I am conscious of that. I am careful with public image and what I put on Instagram and all those sorts of things mm. uh, because I want to be a good role model, but then I also don't want to be defined as that either. So I try and push the boundaries here and there enough that people get used to not expecting me to be something in particular. And I think that's why I started with my debut solo album is it's a very much, it's a personal album, it's very, it's a multi-genre album, um, it's mostly in English, it's um, not religious or spiritual music very much. There's elements of it, and because I really would like to do the Sikh spiritual music, but I don't want that to pigeonhole me into being owned by that set of people and that I have to then play those rules in a religious kind of way. And so I kind of figure if I start here, then you will, they, people will get to know me as a person. And if I then do the spiritual Sikh music, it's kind of like, and I also like doing this, but it's not all that I do. You can go back and see that I'm not, I don't know, it's that, that role model thing. I am cautious of because people have their own understanding of what being a good Punjabi girl is. And so I, I want to be able to make sure that I'm proud and, and comfortable with who I am and I'm a good person, but it might not necessarily be the typical what a Punjabi parent wants their daughter to be. Mm. <laughs> is that too bad? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. There's this kind of like... I, I'm think, I think about those things a, a lot in how I represent my culture and it does feel like this heavy weight and responsibility, but also I want to be loved for all that I am and all that I do because I'm a good person. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really important, you know, as an artist as well to be free of being able to reflect the times that you're in, reflect what's going on in your life and, and bring your culture with you in the way that feels right to you without fear of being judged. But it's so hard as an artist, whenever we put ourselves out there, we're open to any kind of judgment left, right and centre. So you sort of, you're never going to please everyone. 
So you might as well just put out the art that you feel ethically good about mm. and that you feel proud of artistically. Mm. So how are you feeling now after putting the album out? How are you feeling about your creative space? I feel really good and it's comments like the one that you read out from my dad that I've got their support. I have my parents' support and I have the people that are closest to me. They are helping me be that true authentic mm. artist and, and encouraging me to do that. Um, and they tr I guess there's a trust thing as well that they trust me to still stay within the boundaries, because there are boundaries, and but that I I am a person that is comfortable with those boundaries too, so I'm not going to overstep those boundaries. Um, so I'm really yeah really proud of myself. I'm really happy with how things have gone, and with this record, it feels like a relief as well to finally get something that I've put my name to instead of being Daya Singh's daughter or the mysterious lady in the Bombay Royale, it's just like, this is Parvin and this is me. And after 36 years, it's nice to finally almost, it's like a coming of age record, but uh, <laughs> later on <laughs> in my life in, in a lot of ways. So, you know, I just, I've got it out of my system now and it feels really, really good. And I think what drove me to make this record is I did have all of this in my head and I've had it there for so long. And the, the music, and I, I couldn't find that anywhere else as well. So it was like, if mm. I wanted to hear this music, had I to had it. to make it. <laughs> it's an incredible piece of work and it's incredibly unique. And only Parvin could have made that album. And that's one of the things I truly love about the record. And I think it really does sort of, you know, straddle these two worlds while being uniquely you. It's creating your own genre and your own mark and that's so special and we're also grateful that you made the record especially in this incredibly wild time that we've been having in the last two years so can you tell me why you decided to put the album out during these times rather than kind of hold on to it and wait until touring was more of a possibility for you because you've such a prolific touring artist why put it out when touring wasn't available? I think that if I'd sat on it for too long and held it back, I would have evolved as an artist already <laughs> further <laughs> yeah. and it wouldn't be relevant to me anymore. So if I yeah. was touring it later on, I'm already kind of over it and so mm -hmm. it wouldn't make sense anymore. So I, I just... I made the music, I, I kind of, I didn't rush it, I didn't hold it back, I just let it flow in a way that was comfortable. I mean, we, I would meet with my producer online on Zoom every Monday during the lockdown in 2020 and it was like something that I looked forward to every week. It was like, I'm still being useful, I'm still doing something active. And so it's just, I did have to, it's, it's hard to make a record and put a record out. Yeah. So. Um, I did have my, my deadlines and my timelines and I just kind of stuck to it. I just thought that I, I'm the resilience, you know, of being an artist during this time, I, I need to keep doing my job and I need to just push through that. Uh, and there has been things like there's a film clip that's still coming from it that's just, it took, you know, a couple of rescheduling of being able to video it so it's all really late. but. 
I'm, yeah, not too worried about timelines, and it's also a, like doing the album launch, for example, was six months after the album came out, pretty much, so it's like a timeline, I feel like, is a little less relevant at the moment, and once it gets ready, once it feels good, if it's finished, if it's polished and it's nice, I just kind of released it out into the world straight away. Like I'm, uh, I think it's worked fine because I already have now what I'm, what I want to do next. So it's kind of like I've come back into touring, which after two years of not touring and not performing, I got really comfortable in my little space and my little kind of private bubble. And it is, you know, I think for a lot of artists, there's a lot of social anxiety that we kind of develop, I don't know why, but, um, and so it is hard to kind of remember that I can do my job well. <laughs> Because we haven't been doing it lots when you do do that one live performance and it's like at the at your album launch or at the WOMAD festival and that's the first gig that you've done. It's like there's no gig hardening before that. So that is quite terrifying. But I, I need to just believe and remember that I do know how to do this. There's muscle memory and... You got will, this. I've got this you and got it will it. come back and it's there and it will all... It'll be fine. <laughs> I keep telling myself that anyway. <laughs> so how did it feel putting the album out, not being in the Dire Sing Ensemble, not being the Mysterious Lady, being you? I mean, it's such a brave thing to do to step out of that and really show Parvin. How did that feel? Uh, terrifying but incredibly exhilarating at the same time. I, I feel free. I feel like there's a load off my shoulders is that I'm not pretending to be anyone else anymore, that I'm just I'm me and that's what I have to offer and that I, if you like it, you like it, if you don't like it, that judgment, but I'm feeling in a really safe space within myself at the moment and a confident space within myself. And doing things like this is only helping me get into that space more. I've been doing this for 30 odd, I've been performing on stages for a very, very long time. And sometimes I need to remind myself of that, but I am also stepping into those shoes better, I'm finding now. <laughs> so talking about confidence, that's something that is, it's a word that's often used in the music industry to talk about women's role in the industry, that women are lacking in confidence and that's what's holding us back in progressing further in the music industry. How do you find that confidence to work in such a difficult industry? I think becoming a mother has helped me realise that I am capable and that I know what I'm doing and I can, you know, I can, like, looking after another human being in such, that is in such a vulnerable position and having that experience of, like, I can provide for this child and I know that I'm a good mother, that has helped in me not caring so much about what other people think of me. Um, uh, and being a mother, and I think that there is more um, out out there in the moment with social media and, and with media images, that changing of body image as well, like mm. that it's okay to be, com like, be comfortable in your skin and 
everyone is beautiful and that you can show that and be, be happy about who you are. So there is a changing narrative, I think, that is happening, um, which is great because I feel like that is helping me just, yeah, I'm, I'm me. I am all I can be. I can't pretend to be anything else. And I think the, the unconditional love that you get from a child helps you know, with that, that it's like, he doesn't care what I look like or anything like that. He, he loves me for who I am and he thinks that I'm the most special person in the world. And so that helps and that has helped me, I think. Can we talk a little bit about the Bombay Royale? That project was such a huge part of your career, recording, touring, and in this project, you play the role of the mysterious lady. Can mm. you tell us about her? She is fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> she is the, a massive personality. She is com in complete control of everything and everyone around her. Uh, she is incredibly intelligent. She's um, a larger than life, but also I think well, she's she's very skilled as well. Like she she knows how to kick ass when she needs to, and she knows how to just like manipulate situations. She's a spy. She's a secret agent, right? So she's like creme de la creme of of like whatever that sort of top of the secret agent James Bond kind of thing, right? So anyway, because of this character that I've been playing for the last decade. Um, it has really helped me take on more of those traits, I think, which has been excellent for my feeling of self-worth and mm -hmm. all those sorts of things. There was a time where it was separate that I did feel like I stepped into that role and when I got on stage, I was her. Um, but she wouldn't exist unless those traits were things that I could also be, right? Like... Being an actress, you you kind of connect with that fantasy, but it does exist within you and you can play those roles. So I don't know why she was called the mysterious lady. It was something that um, Andy Williamson, the skipper of the Bombay Royale, it was the name that he had and I kind of went with it and I, I loved it. I don't know if he knew how much of an impact it would make on me personally and as a performer, but it has been perfect for me and my development as an artist. So she's kind of like Parvin's equivalent of Beyonce and Sasha Fierce. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, she's just, um, she's invincible which is awesome. And I think there's, there's a mysterious lady in all of us. In all of us. And you can connect with that mysterious lady and I encourage you to do so because she does exist within you. Um, and uh, yeah, I would, I would love everyone to find their mysterious lady in there somewhere. I had a teacher in high school who was trying to talk to us teenagers about you know, feeling, feeling confident and he said, you should visualise that, you know, you're a superhero and you get up in the morning and you put your cape on. And when you visualise that put your cape on, you instantly stand up a bit straighter, put your cape on. So it's kind of like that. You get mm. your mysterious lady on. Mm. 
<laughs> yeah, but then I also think about what she is like behind closed doors and she's just like... She's mysterious. She's a girl that also likes to be on her couch wrapped up in a doona drinking a cup of tea watching like rom-coms. So it's, you know, it's, everyone's got lots of, you know, it's multifaceted. Yes, of course. Your time at the Bombay Royale was such an intense period of work with touring and recording and international appearances like Glastonbury Festival. What do you reflect on in that time? What was it like for you? It was fun. It was a lot of fun. There was a lot of love as well. Like the family that we created with the Bombay Royale, not just within our band and our management, but also with our audience and with our supporters and our fans. Like, it was a movement almost. Like, it's, it's seen as a cult band now. Um, but I just, I am so grateful for those times that I had with them and they'll be lifelong family. Like, the relationships that you create with your band members is beautiful and I just have lots of big brothers and um, and sister Roz so like I I definitely was um, I guess it was very insular in lots of ways and I do feel like I was protected a lot of the time with all of my brothers around me and that I was there and so it was a very safe space it was very accepting and open for everyone to just be yourself and there's no judgment. I remember one show of the Bombay Royale with the inflatable giant elephant. Where is he now? <laughs> he, I think he lives in Andy's shed. <laughs> he does still exist. Um, we had to make a new banner for him and stuff like that. His name is The Colonel. Ah, yeah. So he's in a suitcase for the moment. <laughs> he might come out again one day, but like when we have just like you know barbecues or whatever, every once in a while he'll just be like blown up and just will be there on the side while we're just having barbecue. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Do you have any favourite Bombay Royale moments? Was it Glastonbury that was televised on BBC or? Was it more one of the intimate shows? There's a few. Um, one of my favourite moments that I can go back to and just be so happy is we did a show at the Estonia House. Um, in Brunswick. Yeah. And it was a show that um, was put on by Shadow the Cinema. Yeah, Shadow Electric. Shadow Electric. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was sold out and there was an incredible crowd um, I was pregnant at the time, but I didn't, I hadn't told anyone yet. It was very early on. And so I was nauseous and not feeling well. And we'd done a show at Lawn the day before. And then we came back and we did this show. But there's this one song that we have called Wild Stallion Mountain. Yes. And there's a part of it that the music breaks down and it stops for a moment. And there's a breather before like, you know, a false ending type thing. And so we got to that part and it stopped and the audience just made so much noise and they were just applauding and clapping and wooting and it was just like this deafen deafening like crowd noise coming. I just couldn't 
keep going. Like I couldn't sing the next song because normally I'd like wait for them to die down. But this was just intense. They were just like kept going. The longer I waited, the more they like <laughs> applauded as well. And so I was just, it was this moment of just like, I, I was almost in tears, kind of the love that we were getting, this just wave of applause that was coming. And I, and it, yeah, I don't know how long the pause was, but it felt like a really long time. And I, but finally, I was like, okay, guys, you need to, <laughs> you need to be quiet so that I can do the next bit. Otherwise, the band won't hear the cue for being able to come back into the song. And so, yeah, we were on stage for quite a while, and I was just laughing and giggling and. Um, and all the bands all, because they're waiting for me to start the next bit to then come back into the song again. So, yeah, that was an incredible moment. Can you imagine what it was like for those bands, like the Beatles, and you see that YouTube footage from, and it's just constant screaming the whole gig. It's like, how do they even do the show? Yeah, that might be irritating. <laughs> this wasn't, this only happened once, it was fine. <laughs> So you had your first baby during your time with Bombay Royale. Can you share a little bit with us about navigating that time? I know personally for me, becoming a mum two years ago, I was pretty terrified my entire pregnancy of just going, oh, what have I done? Um, you know, I'm excited about becoming a mum, but I was worried about my music career and am I going to lose momentum? Do I become invisible now? Am I going to be able to navigate gigs and motherhood? How were you feeling about it? And do you think motherhood has impacted your creativity? Absolutely. I, when, before I got pregnant, I with my husband, I, I was trying to plan like when I would have the child in relation to the album cycle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that... Plan that in for this date, this year, yeah. I, uh, I absolutely... That didn't work. So the, the first... And I had a miscarriage the first time. And so I think at that point I learned you can't plan these things. Like it's just got to happen. And I do feel like it made an impact of the momentum of the band when it happened. Um, and But I, I definitely, I remember having conversations with Andy about it and he was like, whoa, 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 you have a baby whenever you want to have a baby. Like, absolutely do not, do not think about the band in mm. any way. So, like, I had a lot of support, just, like, that shouldn't be an issue at all you have a baby when you're ready to have a baby and we'll deal with it and we'll go around with it. In saying that, though, yeah, that... So I I had Ravi in between the second and third album, um, but, like, more towards when the album was released, um, the third album, and, yeah, it, everything did get harder at that point and the Bombay Royale subsequently stopped playing as well. Like, it wasn't just me that having that extra logistics of having a child and the other members in the band, everyone was kind of having kids and becoming, um, yeah, a family kind of orientated a lot more and it, it impacted significantly in a way that we couldn't just kind of take off and go to Europe for a month and, you know, there was so much more to think about. And, yeah, the band kind of fizzled a little bit from that. That's not the only reason, 
but I do feel like it was a contributing factor to it. I've read articles with you where you've talked about festivals being particularly supportive of taking kids. I've had both. There's been supportive and then not really. But, you know, that's fine. Like, some, some places are, are great with it. Others are just, like, not helpful at all. What would you like to see change in the music industry to be more supportive of families? Because this is a huge issue, especially for practising artists that are female. So many women, once they have kids, that's it for them. A lot dip out of making music altogether, which is why it's so incredible and so wonderful to see you launching a new chapter in your career as a solo artist post-motherhood. That's actually quite rare. How can we make this ecosphere better? Because <laughs> this shouldn't be an exception to the rule. Yeah. I guess, I mean, the way that my family dealt with it was just get your kid a part of the act as yeah. soon as possible. <laughs> That's one strategy. <laughs> just on stage with you and they go along for the ride. I, I think, generally speaking, it's okay. Like, I, I have been, um, like, my gig times and things like that, having a late gig time, you just kind of think, oh, wouldn't you kind of not do that <laughs> so that you know that I have a child with me? Like, it's, I wouldn't, if it's during the day or a little bit earlier for my gig time, it's easier for me because, you know, he can be there with us and he's quite capable of looking after himself um, on the side of stage. And, um, but if it's a late show, then I'm going to need someone that can sit with him in the hotel or whatever like that at night time. Um, so, yeah, just being aware of it. And I think, generally speaking, people are, but I've, for example, this solo project, I work with my husband, Josh, and I have worked with him since we've been together for 15 years. And so with this project, there's, he's not on the album except the last song, him and Ravi are the, are the last song, but there's no guitar on the album. because I, <laughs> I specifically made it so that I could have a project where he wasn't involved. Um, it's ended up that he is part of the band <laughs> uh, and, you know, that's just, it. just naturally we kind of, I needed him to help me because I was in Adelaide and then I had my Melbourne band and I couldn't get the Melbourne band over because of lockdown and um, the, so they would have had to quarantine and so then I had to get an Adelaide band together and so then I was like, Josh, can you help me with this because you know all the music. Anyway, so it's ended up that he is part of the band but I tried and I was very conscious of having a project where he wasn't involved to make it easier for us that, you know, one of us could be with Ravi. Um, I think one of the things that when I had a child, the, I enjoyed taking a step back and not being the centre of attention anymore. Like, I think there's an element of ego which kind of gets stripped away and you're like, oh, I like just being, you know, Ravi's mum. And I, and I like that. So I don't know whether it is when that happens, this, the sense of... Because you have to have some, like, ego, I suppose, to be able to push to be a performer, right? Like, it, it takes a lot of that confidence and that courage and that, um, you know, just that drive to do the work because it's really hard work and you have to sell your stuff. And so maybe it's women are less likely to want that as much after being a mother 
which is why you don't see it as often, perhaps. Um, I'm just putting that out there. I don't know. Well, like, you're a mother. Where, do you feel that kind of sense of, like, it's okay to take a step back and almost, almost wanting a simpler life and that it would be okay if I was a librarian and that's what I did? <laughs> um, yeah. I, when I was pregnant, I sort of felt like there was this doomsday date coming where it was things were going to change so significantly there'd be the Chelsea that everyone knows and then this new Chelsea, the mother, where all my former life would just vanish away. So the whole pregnancy, I was really hustling. I went overseas twice. I went interstate about five times. It's like I had this crazy bucket list. I've got to do all this before the baby comes. And then, you know, then I had our little son and kind of realised actually the world's still turning and I can hmm. still do all of these things. It's just going to be you know, a little bit trickier to navigate some of it, but that's just logistics, nothing's impossible. But I think it gives you that sense of clarity or that sense of what's really actually important, what do I want to spend my time on, and cutting out things that actually weren't that important that I maybe felt obliged to do beforehand and was doing things I didn't really want to do, but I felt, you know, I had to be polite and say yes all the time. Definitely that, but I was very much looking forward to looking after someone else and not just being focused on me all the time and, and having an opportunity to really give. Mm. And that's been really beautiful. In saying that, I feel like though I don't, I didn't need to be a mother to feel satisfied in life. Like I do feel like music and that creativity that totally. comes with it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And that is satisfying enough. And I think about it that being a mother, it's only a, quite a short time in my life. And so I don't want to destroy everything else that I've worked for because he will move on and he will go on his way and then I'll be left. And so I'm not attaching my self-worth and all those sorts of things to my child either. I am a complete independent person and I haven't changed... If anything, I've just got more life experience, which is great, you know, like learning. And that comes with age, whether or not you have the experience of being a parent or not. And so it's just one little thing. I don't think it's a big, big deal in, in some ways of because I'm satisfied as, as my work and my job and my career is, is a great life just as it is without being a mother also. Yeah, I feel the same. I even felt the same about when I was single versus having a partner. Just thought, you know, things are great, life's great, if I meet someone, fantastic, but that's not gonna be the, the focus of my whole world. Um, and it just so happened that I did meet someone who was amazing, and mm. it was like, wow, well now life's getting even better, and now we've added to that, and it's just mm. great, but it's, I think it's important to have that base to start with, and feel good in yourself because if you, I mean, to quote RuPaul, but if you can't love yourself, you know, how are you going to love someone else? That, mm. that thing, I think it's just such a great quote. Mm. So often in the music industry, it's just one thing to the next, right? It's the single, the this, the that, the blah, blah, blah. The last couple of years has kind of put a bit of a, a handbrake on that. But do you celebrate the wins? How did you celebrate putting out the album? Oh, I'm not sure because it all happened online. So obviously I've done my album launch now and so that was the biggest celebration that I've ever tried to do, uh, the biggest show that I've ever put on and I got 
all of, I've got the Bombay Royale back together for it. I put so out the good. call. I was like, help me, come and help me celebrate my record. And so everyone came together and like that was, I guess, the official celebration. But when it actually came out, I, I just had a good time with my family. Like I just let it out and just hung out at home. And, and I think it's, it's just, uh, it's a celebration in a way that I just, I relaxed. <laughs> I think that's how I celebrated. I just was like, oh, okay, this is, it's good, it's done. Um, and yeah, I didn't make too much of a big deal of it, I think personally, in my personal life. Because it's also still just my job, right? Like I, I am conscious of, in my case, and I think for many people is if I, the higher I go, sometimes that means the lower I will go as well. So I'm trying to be more balanced in um, experiencing life on a even plateau and not getting too hyped up. And because I feel like when I do, that means that there'll be a dip coming afterwards. Wow. <laughs> How do you go about that? Uh, medication sometimes, <laughs> but yeah, like I, um, I, it's something that I've noticed for me, like if I hype something up too much, there's, yeah, the, the opposite will be soon to follow. Mm -hmm. It's quite an up and down journey working in the music industry and there are those huge highs and those big lows and moving from project to project to project can be a complete recipe for exhaustion and burnout is a huge part of, you know, it's very common in the industry for a lot of us to get quite burned out. I interviewed Ketchy in LA last year who said she thinks the music industry loves to burn through vulnerable people. Mm. Do you agree with that statement? I don't think it does it intentionally but it just happens, yeah. Because it's a very exciting industry and so you can get caught up in it and, and it can be quite fun and it can be, you know, you put your yourself, your heart into your work, into your art and I think that's the only way to, to make good art is you really have to be authentic and give yourself. It's you, If you're kind of superficial about it, it doesn't really work so well. So in that way, the industry... Yeah, you people who are vulnerable kind of put themselves out there and then are um, open for um, getting taken advantage of or whatever. Like, I don't know, I'm, I'm hopeful that the industry doesn't do it intentionally, but it does tend to happen, for sure. I think one of the good things that's come out of the pandemic in the music industry if you can consider this a good thing, is that at least there's more conversations happening now around mental health for artists. There was an incredible book that came out called Can Music Make You Sick? Written by Sally Ann Gross and George Musgrave, which came out in March 2020. And part of that report revealed that out of the thousands of musicians they surveyed, around 71% reported incidences of anxiety and panic attacks, and 68%, 68.5% of respondents experiencing depression. So the research suggests that musicians could be up to three times more likely to suffer from depression compared to the general public. And that came out just before 
the pandemic really hit, which I think is really important because we can't sort of just point the finger at COVID for everything and acknowledge that it is a hard ecosphere to participate in and can take a real toll on artists. What do you think needs to happen in the music industry to be more supportive of artists? I feel like we need to cut the barriers of that superficial attitude which sometimes happens within the industry as well to kind of be more open and honest with each other in a really accepting and non-judgmental way. Um, I do feel like there is competition vibes which happens in the industry and I, I just kind of want to get rid of that because um, there's that thing, Valerie Kaur, who's um, a beautiful person from the state, she has this thing that you are a part of me that I do not yet know. And so seeing other people's successes and wins as being a good thing for the industry overall and celebrating each other as being one and that we're all on the same team, sometimes I don't feel that in the industry. I don't know if you've had ex uh, uh, like that sort of experience, but I would like to get to a point where we can all be brothers and sisters and that we're, we're all in this together and we can all support each other doing this and building each other up in a really loving, unconditionally loving way. I'd really like to chat to you about your experiences from that female perspective. Is there any specific time that you remember thinking you were treated differently because you're a woman in the industry? Yes, um, I try not to hold on to those moments very much. Uh, I have a very selective memory. <laughs> and so if things like that have happened, I kind of just blow them aside and go, oh, okay, and then just like move on. Um, I mean, I know there are definitely people who like, with your experiences, for example, I know you've had moments where people have said, oh, you have to lose weight to be able to get gigs and all those mm -hmm. sorts of things. I, for me, I have had sly comments like that or even people, uh, you know, that might be less willing to give me the gigs because they know that I'll have extra baggage of my son to be part of it and all those, those like having to take that along. I do feel that, definitely. Um, but I try and be resilient and just like not let it get me down. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all you can do, really. Yeah. For John. Uh, for John. And I also, um, like I've had moments where people have tried to take advantage of me at festivals or whatever and I just really try and toe the line of, I, I treat everyone as, like, for males, as uncles and brothers uh, in the industry, and I kind of try and have that relationship connected straight away so that they accept me as that, and hopefully they treat their, you know, sisters well, uh, which not everyone does because there's a lot of examples of that in the world, which I know. But I, yeah, I've tried to help hold myself and present myself in that way when there's been the male gaze and all that sort of thing. So it's kind of like it's your responsibility to make me feel comfortable because I am, you know, I am yours. I'm part of your clan and your family. 
So I think that's how I've dealt with it mostly. It's just like, you're my bros, man. You're my bro. And yeah, we're all in it together. Yeah, we're all in it together and, and um, you, you need to help me do this in a way that is comfortable because that's your responsibility as a man to look after me also. You're going to perform a song for us in a wee bit, <laughs> yes. which I'm super excited about. But we did promise our wonderful audience that if they had any questions, they could get part of the action. Put your hand up if you'd like to ask Parvin a question. Yes. Uh, you mentioned that you already know what's in the music coming. Oh. Yes, what is coming next musically, Parvin? It, it's still a dream, and I um, will speak to you guys about it as well. Um, Chris Stone is there, an in incredible violinist and arranger. I would like to do a Sikh spiritual record, um, and I would like to incorporate strings. I would, uh, like, I'll start with a string quartet, and hopefully that will spread out to an orchestra <laughs> that's in my head I have this vision and, it, and again it's the same thing of like I have this music in my head that I can't find anywhere else that hasn't been done anywhere else and so I would, I'm just putting that out there <laughs> that um yes having Gurbani is what it's called it's the Sikh spiritual music but having that with with um an orchestra would be an incredible Beautiful. thing You've worked with a lot of hip-hop artists. Yeah. I'm waiting for the Mysterious Ladies trap release. You oh, know? I, I have tried to rap before, <laughs> and it's not me. And <laughs> I, I'm, I'm okay with that, and I, I'm okay with it not being me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, the difference between being a solo artist and being in a band of that nature is that the onus is up to you to get the work done and you are in control of the project. So I am completely self-managed. I don't have a record label. I don't have a booking agent. So I'm doing it all myself. Uh, it's the first time that I've done that. I've definitely been part of managing things like the Bombay Royale and even with my dad I used to tour manage when we used to go overseas and so I have that experience but this time it's like me if the work if I don't do the work it's not going to get done <laughs> um, and I don't have anyone else to fall back on so the responsibility of the success of it is up to me putting in the work to get it done. But was it also really beautiful not to be in a democratic situation where you could just yes. make every decision and not get the opinion of eight other people? Absolutely. <laughs> that was, it was so good. It's just like, I don't have to ask anyone what, you know, what I'm going to put this, what lyric I'm going to put here. I can decide exactly what it should be. And to start off with, I, I had to get used to that too, that it was like, this is my decisions. This is, no one's telling me what to do here. And also no one... I'm not trying to fulfill anyone else's vision with the Bombay Royale and with Dia Singh, like I played a role in those, whereas this is, I've created the role, I've created what it should be and no one else knows what it should be and so I have to be the one that does that. And it's, yeah, incredibly exhilarating to just be able to do what I want.
And I think we're all ready for a live song, if you could please. Absolutely. Um, do us the honours. I'd like to acknowledge the ancestors, my ancestors, and ask for their blessings to be able to perform this music for you today. I come from such a rich heritage, and so this is my ode to forgotten stories, forgotten characters. This is Jada, who was a goddess from South India, who if you ask most Indians, they have also forgotten her. So this is my tribute to the goddess. Oh, no, that could go. 
for joining us here, our very first live edition of the Control Podcast with my incredible guest, Parvin. Please make sure you follow the Control Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Follow Parvin on all of her social channels. Please subscribe to the Control Podcast on your preferred podcast platform. We'll be back here on Friday night interviewing Ali McGregor. Love to see you there. But please join us now in the foyer. Say hi to Parvin. Pick up a copy of her album, Sa. And take care. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much.